Well, good evening, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors. So we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so if you inside your program is a message note sheet, I encourage you to take that out if you would. It's green and white if you're brand new. And we are going to jump in. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here and continue this journey together as we learn how to follow you, how to pursue you, how to listen and follow, be transformed and make a difference. And so we pray that as we continue this journey today, you would come and just give me great clarity of thought, words. I pray that your spirit would be moving in this place in a way that's very personal and powerful at the same time. And Father, we pray that um, you'd open our eyes to see a little bit more what it means to follow you and be part of your movement and be used by you to help change the world. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now for a few weeks called Sent Going Global. And for those of you who are brand new, welcome. I always like to take just a, a minute and bring you up to speed. This series uh, is actually the third in a line of mini-series. It's uh, based on a study of one of the most important books in our New, new Testament called the book of Acts. And uh, in the book of Acts, uh, the author is a man named Luke. Luke is documenting and describing the early movement of Jesus, especially the first 30 years after the resurrection. And so uh, the last few weeks, we've watched as this uh, one of the most innovative um, and influential churches in the early church. It was called the Church of Antioch. In fact, there in your program, you might want to pull out your map just to get oriented. We're not doing a lot of travel today, a much easier map. But you see Antioch there on the right side. It's called Antioch of Syria. And, uh, and so uh, the Church of Antioch has sent out uh, two of the brightest and best leaders, a man by the name of Saul or Paul, Apostle Paul, and a man named Barnabas, to share the message of Jesus really for the first time uh, with both Jews and Gentiles in the Roman world in, this, in the area of kind of, a, it's called Galatia, southern Turkey today. And so they've had great success. People have come to Jesus. God's poured out his spirit. Miracles have happened. A lot of persecution. They have returned home now after 18 months, a, a two-year trip. They've shared the message with the Church of Antioch. Most of the Church of Antioch is Gentiles. They're very excited about this. But when the mother ship, uh, the mother church back in Jerusalem hears about this, they have some concerns, or more accurately, certain, a certain faction has some concerns. And so they're going to send some teachers down to this church that's predominantly Gentile, uh, uh, the church of Antioch, and they're going to say, well, it's great that you want to be part of the movement of Jesus. It's great Gentiles are coming to Jesus. Uh, but if you want to be part of the kingdom, you want to be part of the movement, you basically need to convert to Judaism. Like, if you want to be part of God's people, you have to do what God's people do. So you have to be circumcised. You have to follow all the Jewish law, kind of the Torah. And so this is going to lead to a major conflict and dispute that's one of the turning points in all of church history. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up with me to, um, to Acts chapter 15. We're going to pick it up at verse 1. Today, we're actually only looking at the first six verses, but there's a lot that's packed in there. And so in Acts 15, in verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. So if you see on your map, uh, it's really saying from like Jerusalem to Antioch. It's about a 300-mile journey, all right? So they come down, and uh, they they're begin teaching the brothers, these followers of Jesus in the church of Antioch. Remember, it's mostly Gentile. Um, they begin teaching that in, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be what? You can't be saved. So... You, you can't really be part of God's kingdom. Now, as we'll see in a couple of minutes, it's not just circumcision. It also involves following Torah. It's basically converting to becoming a Jew. 
And so uh, this, um, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate. Now, um, to help us understand this, I think as 21st century Christ followers, this is a little bit hard for us to understand. This is so old news to us. Like, uh, none of you, when you came to Jesus, if you were Gentiles, none of you were, like, really concerned, oh, no, what do I have to, have to get circumcised? Like, that wasn't hot, you know, it wasn't high on your list of worries, uh, if, it, if you did have to be, it would have been high, trust me. But um, that's like, it's not, so, but we have to get back in their mindset. Uh, and to understand this, we need to go back to the story of Israel, to the very beginning. And you go back to the story of Israel, at the very beginning, God appears to Abraham, father of the race, and he says, if you trust me, you follow me, uh, I will bless you, I will turn you into a great nation, and uh, through you, you, the whole world will be blessed, right? So, uh, Abraham follows, and about 25 years, over 25 years later, he's about ready to have a, this first child, miraculous child. A year before that happens, God shows up when he's 99, and God says to him, uh, all right, my promise is about to be fulfilled. You're going to have this miracle baby. Um, we're gonna, you call him Isaac. And, uh, and when that child is born, um, I'm going to enter into a special relationship with you and your descendants, and the sign of the relationship is circumcision, right? So think of it like the sign, like the same way a ring on your left uh, ring finger is a sign of what? You're married, right? So it's, it doesn't make you married, but it's a sign of that special relationship. And so uh, I'm not sure how Abraham responded to this news. Uh, honestly, he's 99 years old. We're not talking like you go into a surgical center. We're talking flint knife here. Uh, I know, hey, I've got a special sign of our relationship. Uh, we're going to circumcise you. Uh, I think I'd be going like, do you have any other special signs? Like, um, like maybe a secret handshake or, uh, I mean, Noah got the rainbow. Um, you know, like, what's my sign, right? So um, I'm not sure how that conversation went, but God was very clear that this sign of circumcision was an everlasting sign. In fact, there in your note sheet, uh, I want you to read, and I want you to read this as if you're a Jew at the time this event happens. You've grown up studying Torah. You probably memorized this passage, and look how strong it is. In Genesis 17, God is speaking to Abraham uh, when he's 99. He says, you, you also must agree to keep the covenant, the relationship, with me, both you and your descendants and future generations, you and your descendants must all agree to circumcise catches every male among you. And from now on, you must circumcise every baby boy when he's eight days old, including slaves born in your homes and slaves brought, bought in from foreigners. Now, this will show there is a covenant between you and me, and each one must be circumcised, and this will be the physical sign, like a ring, to show that my covenant with you is what? Everlasting. And so, any male who has not been circumcised will not be considered one of my people because you've not kept the covenant. So you can understand how if you're Jewish, you've grown up, you've memorized this, Gentiles are now coming in to follow. You're like, well, they've got to be circumcised. I mean, this is what God has said. It's like they're in Genesis 17, right? So, so I want you to take you out emotionally to connect with this, right? That this is Seems like Now, it's interesting because Moses and the prophets had all said that one day when Messiah comes, when this kind of this new age comes, that God would circumcise the hearts of his people. There would be a new day. 
And so what's happening is we're moving into this new era of Messiah where it's not the physical circumcision, it's the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit that's going to matter. But they're in a transition period, and so this is really hard for them, right? So they, they, uh, this uh, conservative group says, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate. Now, this is probably an understatement. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas had just returned from 18 months, two-year uh, trips sharing Jesus with both Jews and Gentiles in the province of Galatia. You see that on your map. And after they had gotten back, they had heard word that there were some Jewish teachers who were going into these new converts, Gentile converts, and saying exactly what these Jews were saying here. Unless you're circumcised and obey Torah, you cannot be saved. And in response to that, Paul had recently written the letter to the Galatians. And in the letter to Galatians, he says, wait a second. He says, if you buy into this performance mindset that you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised and you have to obey Torah, he said, then once you sign up for that, you've got to do Torah perfectly. Because if you don't, you're going to be condemned. And so he said, so if you, if you allow yourself to be circumcised and you buy into this, you're going to be lost because you're not trusting in Jesus, you're trusting now in your performance. And so Paul had started that letter to Galatians like this, if anyone comes to you, like these teachers, if anyone comes to you and proclaims a different gospel than the one we gave you, he said, I don't care if it's an angel from heaven, let him be eternally condemned. In other words, go to hell. Pretty strong stuff. So when Luke says that they brought him into sharp dispute, that's what we're talking about. Right? We're talking, we're talking, this is a big deal because Paul and Barnabas realized the implications of this. And so anyway, so Paul and Barnabas were appointed you know, from the church at Antioch, along with some other believers, some other, like think of them like delegates, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders. But we got to get this settled. This is a big deal. And uh, so the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia, which would be like the Mediterranean coast, and then inland went to Samaria, they were telling all the believers on the way how the Gentiles, unbelievers, had been converted. And so the news made all the brothers glad. So in general, in general, people were all for this. And when they came to Jerusalem, catch this, they were welcomed by the church and by the apostles and by the elders. So what we know from Galatians 1, remember written not much before this, we know that Paul had gone to Jerusalem in the past, distant past, and he had shared with the apostles, with Peter and James and John, kind of top three, he had shared with them the gospel that he shared about salvation through Christ. You don't have to, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised, saved. And they had all agreed, yep, we think that's right. That's, that, that fits. So as he comes back, the conflict is not between Paul and the apostles. The conflict's going to be between Paul and a faction of conservative Jewish believers they were still kind of having a hard time letting go of our old paradigm, like we've talked about in the series. And so, um, so they, since they reported everything God had done, you know, the miracles, the healings, the salvation of the Gentiles, the baptisms, the coming of the Spirit, and so on. And so in, in verse 5, it says, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the home? Pharisees. Oh, interesting. We'll come back to that. Um, they stood up and they said, Okay, 
the Gentiles must be circumcised and be required to obey the law of Moses. So now we know where these teachers are coming from. They're coming from a very conservative faction within the church of Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They, they become believers. They believe he's the Messiah. And yet their background and their identity is still as what? Pharisees, right? They were, uh, they were, they were kind of deeply entrenched, and so they're having a hard time kind of switching paradigms here. And so, um, so the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. So we're going to call this, in church history, this is called the Jerusalem Council, all right? So like if you look at a church history, book, it's called the Jerusalem Council. It's the first council of the church throughout church history. There's many councils. You get everyone together on important issues. Who's Jesus? What about Trinity? Things like that. These councils, this was the very first one. And it's a landmark case because it's deciding the issue, going before God and discerning, like, what does it take for Gentiles to be saved? Which really goes to the heart of the issue. What does it take for anyone to be saved, right? So it's an incredibly important issue. It's a turning point. Like I said last week, that many scholars believe Acts 15 is the most important chapter in all of Acts, uh, that it's a critical turning point in the whole movement of Jesus. So what's going to happen? Next week we'll come back, and we're going to see what happens. We're going to see how uh, the discussion, the debate, uh, the decisions, the discernment that's going out as as Luke kind of gives us a 40,000-foot view of here's what happens in this country. We don't know if it's a day or several days or a week. We don't know how long. But there's a lot of discussion, a lot of working it through, and then the decisions they come out with that's going to mark the movement of Jesus forever. All right, so we're going to come back to that next week. But for today, I want to focus on this fascinating verse, chapter 16 and verse 5. Let's look at it again, or verse 15, verse 5, where it says, And some of the what? Some of the believers... So I'm going to catch this. Jesus followers. These are Jews who come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died for them, that he was the long-promised Messiah. Very likely, they had suffered for their faith. They were in Jerusalem. They probably persecuted, uh, become a follower of Jesus, had a price to pay like we talked last week, probably suffered for him. So, they're, so Luke calls them believers, but he said they belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now, isn't that interesting? To me, like if you know much about Jesus, if you've ever read through the Gospels, doesn't that sound like believer and Pharisee is an oxymoron? Uh, like if you had just read, remember Luke writes two volumes, right? He writes Luke, uh, story of Jesus, and then Acts, story of the early church. If you had just read through Luke in one sitting, and now you're reading through Acts, in the book of Luke, and the gospel of Luke, you would have read a reference to Pharisees 26 times. And 26 out of 26, maybe one a little bit not clear. But 25 or 26 out of 26, the Pharisees are represented as self-righteous, hypocritical, and enemies of Jesus that from the very earliest point was trying to kill him. And now we get to Acts 15 and we find in the movement of Jesus, you have followers of Jesus in the church at Rocky Peak who are Pharisees. Self-identified Pharisees. Not like, I used to be a Pharisee and then I met Jesus. No, I'm a Jesus follower and I'm a Pharisee. 
And what we're going to see today is they were having a hard time switching paradigms. The old paradigm, the new paradigm. They were having a hard time. So they believed in Jesus, but it's like they had one foot in Jesus and one foot in their old way of looking at things. Now here's what I want to suggest. Many of us in this room, we struggle with our inner Pharisee. Many times in our life, as we follow Jesus, we become unintentional Pharisees. But a friend of mine has written a book called Accidental Pharisee. And so sometimes this happens because we have grown up in a very conservative church, very fundamentalist church, and, and so we were raised that way, and then we've come to Jesus, but we're still carrying the old paradigms. Sometimes we came to Jesus uh, later in life, and we started off really well following Jesus, but we've kind of become a Pharisee over time. Like Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, you started by the Spirit, but you're now trying to complete it by the flesh. And so today, I want to talk about this concept of being an accidental Pharisee. Because I think that one of the things that happens with our fallen human nature, like when we talk about the flesh, right? When Paul talks about flesh and spirit, we talk about the flesh, we often think of things like sexual immorality, we think of drunkenness, murder, theft, you know, works of the flesh. Can I tell you something? We all have a religious flesh. And our fallen human nature always tends to draw us towards religion. And religion kills. And, and so even as followers of Jesus who love Jesus, believers, we often can fall into the trap of wake up and find ourselves on the path of the Pharisees. And so today what I want to do is I want to ask three diagnostic, diagnostic questions. And have you just some self-evaluation um, and to help you maybe identify some inner Pharisee. Maybe you don't have some, maybe you do. If you don't have it today, this may become helpful for the future. That these questions will help us to identify when we've moved from following Jesus and we move to the path of the Pharisees. All right, so here we go. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Pharisees 101, three important questions. And so we're going to jump in. First question. The first question is, are you adding to God's word? One of the marks of Pharisees, if you study the Gospels, is they tended to add to God's word. Now, let me say this. I think they did this from the best of intentions, or at least when it started. You know, many times you want to follow God in your life, and you're saying, well, the Bible doesn't speak to every situation, and so what should I do in this situation? Then over time, you start adding some extra rules or guidelines that might be helpful for you, but over time, they become kind of like, well, this is the way to do it. We've now added rules that become like bondage over time. And the Pharisees were really good at this. Now, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, and they're ready to go in the promised land, and some of his last messages to them in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses says, as you go in the promised land, let me tell you what it's going to take to succeed. He says, one of the things you need to do is you need to make sure you don't catch us. You don't add or subtract to God's word. Okay? Two equal but opposite and opposite uh, mistakes. So there in your note sheet, Deuteronomy chapter 4, 
and says, uh, Moses says, do not add to what I command you, God is speaking, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Don't, don't add to the word, don't take away. Uh, we add to the word, when we add man-made rules and traditions and uh, rituals that God never said, but we add them, and they over time become equally authoritative as God's word. To subtract means we ignore certain things that God has said, or we, uh, we don't practice them, or we disobey in those areas. So he says, don't make either, don't add, don't take away. Now, here's the thing. When I think of the um, Pharisees, as we'll see later on today, they both added and subtracted. In fact, many times they would subtract because they were adding, as we'll see. Um, but when I think of the Pharisees, the first thing that comes to mind is adding. They're, they're the great adders. Uh, let me give you an example. Moses comes, uh, nation of Israel comes out of Egypt, meet at God at Mount Sinai, and God speaks to them from heaven the Ten Commandments, right? He doesn't speak the whole law, but from the, from the Ten Commandments. Commandment number four is to honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. And so here's the deal. Uh, when they were slaves in, Israel, in uh, Egypt, they didn't have any days off. And God said, you're my people now, and I want you to have a holiday every week. Like, I don't want you to work yourself to the bone. So one day a week, we're going to take off, uh, and you're going to rest, and you're going to restore, and you're going to renew. So it was a gift, right? But by the time uh, that the Pharisees had gotten done with it, by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees often added what we call in theology the oral law. All right? So they would have these traditions of the rabbis there were basically commentary on the Word of God um, that would say, okay, so this is what that means, and so they would add their interpretations, and those would become equally authoritative. So you have the written law and the oral law. Are you, are you following me? So these two things go together. And so for the Pharisees, they began to add all these oral laws. Now, uh, we know that about 170 years after Jesus that these oral laws that were very common at the time of Jesus were finally written down. It's like all the oral laws and traditions were written down. And they were written down in a book we call the Mishnah. You've probably heard of that, Mishnah. Probably. Um, this is my copy of the Mishnah. These are the small print footnotes of what the word says. This is what it means. So, like, example, like, if you were to go to... The, the section in the Mishnah about Shabbat, about Sabbath, you would have, now, you can't really see this super well, maybe a little bit, it's small print, right? You would have 37 pages of explanation of what it means to not work on the Sabbath. Now, the rabbis had identified 39 categories of activity that qualified as work. Now, to give you a feel for this, I put an um, a excerpt from the Mishnah there on your note sheets to so follow along. So, the main classes of work are 40 save 1. In other words, 39. And here we go. Sowing, and it's talking about like planting your field. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves. I know some of you neurotic ones are counting. Uh, threshing, winnowing. Cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops. I love that. Making two. You can make one loop on the Sabbath, two loops over the line. 
All right? Um, yeah, it's where that we get the phrase, you're looped. No, I'm just kidding. All right. So uh, weaving two threads, weaving two threads, can't do that. I'm separating two threads, tying a knot. Now, this is why they wore sandals and not shoes, because you could not wear shoes on the side. You couldn't tie your shoes. Oh, no. uh, so uh, loosening that, sewing two stitches. You can do one stitch, but not two. Um, tearing in order to, to, to sew two stitches. So if you do one and then you rip it out, you can do another one. No, you cannot do that. Um, you, hunting a gazelle, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up. I love this, writing two letters, like the alphabet, like writing two letters. Uh, and don't think you can erase in order to write two letters. That's a, you cannot like write one and then erase it. I want to write a note. That counts as two. Um, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, taking something out from one domain to another, like inside the house, outside the house, or vice versa. These are the main classes of work, 40 save one. Now, for each of those classes, there would be page after page of here's examples of that class. So, for example, when it comes to walking, they said the law, the, the rule is you can walk um, six-tenths of a mile. Of course, they didn't say six-tenths of a mile, but, you know, that's what it would be today. So you walk half a mile, you're good. Over six-tenths, nope, broken the law. Uh, second example, if you are a tailor or a scribe, you're not allowed to carry a needle in your coat when you walk out or a pen in your pocket because that would be taking your work with you. Uh, number three, if you start a job on Friday, remember Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday. So they said if you start a job on Friday, like let's say you're dyeing wool in a vat. They said you have to pull that wool out before sundown. Like if you leave it in, you don't touch it, but you leave it in there Saturday, you are causing it to absorb more dye. And you, since you started that, you are working even though you're not touching it. Now, this was one they got Jesus into trouble with them. They said, like, if your roof caves in on your house, uh, it is okay to go in and see if there are any survivors and rescue them. It's okay to administer first aid. But you're not allowed to, like, fix any broken bones or reset or what. You need to wait till the next day. Now, this got Jesus into trouble. Why? Because, remember, he's always healing on the Sabbath. And he's very intentional about it. Like, if you go to Mark 3, it's like, it's the Sabbath, and he's like, um, all right, um, hey, you with a crippled hand, come up here in front of everyone, stretch out your hand, and after that, we're told that they, tried, they wanted to try to kill him. So, um, so what had happened is that this gift of God, the word had given, to rest, restore, renew, in Jesus' mind, like, what better day to heal and renew than the Sabbath? But in their mind, no, that's being a doctor. That's work you can't. And so this would cause, you know, conflict with him. And so the irony about this, and here's what I want you to catch. This is really an interesting twist. Um, I don't want you to miss this. Is what happens when we start adding rules to God's word. What happens is we start measuring our spirituality with the wrong yardstick. And what that does is you start measuring your spirituality with the wrong ruler, pretty soon you miss the things you should be doing, and you've actually subtracted. And this is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, said, you, you know, you, 
you will, uh, he said, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow the camel. He said, you, uh, you will tithe down to the herb garden, but you miss the weightier things in the law, mercy and compassion and justice. So what happens when you, on the path of the Pharisee, not only do you add these man-made rules, but you start measuring yourself by them, it causes you to subtract or miss what's really most important. Loving God, loving people, right? And so Jesus uh, put it this way there in your note sheet in Mark chapter 7. He said, you have let go of the commands of God, the word of God, and you're holding on to the traditions of men. And so what happens is that when we start heading down this path, the path of adding rules to what God has said, what happens, it leads to a life of bondage, and it leads to a life of broken relationships. We become harsh people. Uh, this is really what legalism is all about. You know, in Christian circles, we sometimes talk about legalism. And, um, you know, sometimes we misunderstand this. Like, I, I, I can think of someone, uh, they're, they're going out, they're drinking too much, they're, they're uh, coming under the influence. And one of their Christian friends said, hey, you know, they're two Christians. And one of the Christian friends said, hey, I think it's a little too much. You're getting a buzz here, you know. And they're like, hey, don't be so legalistic. That's not legalism. That's obedience. All right? So we don't, obedience is just doing what God tells you to do. That's not legalism. You can't be overly obedient. Right? Legalism is where we add man-made rules and we treat them as if it's God's word. And that leads to destruction in our lives. It leads to bondage. It leads to broken relationships. Um, so uh, this happens all the time. This is what I want you to catch. As followers of Jesus, we all have an inner Pharisee. And there's always a natural tendency over time to, to do this, to do man-made kind of rules. Uh, we, you know, whether it's, uh, they can be cultural things or it can be religious things. We begin to associate with following Jesus. I've seen it over my life. I'm sure you have give you a lot of examples. But I mean, just think of like my life, whether it's... Uh, Christians shouldn't drink alcohol, or uh, Christians uh, shouldn't wear a certain kind of clothes, or Christians shouldn't listen to music with a certain kind of beat, or Christians shouldn't get tattoos, or whatever the thing is, that we start adding to what God has said, and it's often even in positive areas. For example, as followers of Jesus, we know that if we want to grow and thrive, we need to pursue God, don't we? And one of the ways we pursue God is we um, we spend time alone with him, right? We, we spend time uh, on a regular, we, we pray, we read his word, we listen for his voice, right? This is an important part. We would all agree, and the Bible is clear on that, right? Pray without ceasing, devote yourselves to prayer, things like that, right? So we would all agree, but what happens is since the Bible is not overly clear on things like, well, how often should you do this? Or when should you do this? How long should you do this? What should you do when you do this? That over my life growing up in the church, I've seen this often, that if you want to grow with Jesus, you need to get up in the morning. God is a morning person. <laughs> and so you need to get up, you know, before you go to work, and it needs to take place in the morning. And it's not just saying, like, try this. It's like, no, this is the way it works. And then it's like, well, okay, so how long? Well, it should be an hour. It needs to be an hour. And then it becomes like, well, what should I do? 
Well, it's, you should pray. Well, how should I pray? Well, let me tell you, this is how you need to do it. And we'll give a, an acronym, like ACTS, right? And again, nothing against ACTS, you know, this acronym. It's been very helpful to many people. Nothing against it. It's not, it only becomes legalism when we say this is the only way. When you say it's a way, try it out. Well, great. That's, there's freedom in that. But so, you know, so then you be told, okay, so you have to put, you start with A for adoration. You need to start with prayer, with praising God, come into his temple. And then, and then you need to go with a C for confession, any sin in your life. And then you go to T to thanksgiving. Uh, and then you go to S, supplication. Now you can ask for what you want. But you need to go through A, you know, A, C, T first. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Uh, when I first came to Rocky Peak, I had a fair amount of people upset with me for a lot of reasons. But... Um, <laughs> This particular reason, uh, this particular reason was that when I would pray sometimes from the front, I would not end my prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen. And there was many people that were upset by that. Like, no, this is the way you pray. I, I, I really like you, Michael, and I really, I'm really glad you're here and all, but it kind of bothers me, you know, you pray in Jesus' name, amen. And it's like I would, you know, say, huh, well, help me out, help me understand, and so what they'd understood is, you know, Jesus talked about praying in his name, and they thought that that meant ending every prayer and in Jesus' name, amen. Otherwise, God wouldn't hear you. Uh, I kind of point out that there is not one prayer in the Bible that ends that way. And so that probably means something different, right? So let's talk about what it means. But you see what I mean? It's like I could go on and on, but we get these ideas in our head where we're going to help God out. We're going to add man-made rules. And what it does is it causes us to start measuring our spirituality by the wrong ruler. And it causes us to subtract from the things that are really most important. And whenever you're around uh, a group of Christ followers that are very kind of pharisaical, they will be measuring and kind of measuring and kind of sizing everyone up by certain man-made things. It's just the way it works. So uh, one of my favorite verses is in Proverbs where uh, Proverbs says, every word of God is flawless and do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Right? So when we start adding to what God has said, hey, this is the way you have to do it. This is what the word means. This is what it has to do. Uh, and the word is not clear on it. Then what we, we've, we've headed down that road of the path, I call it the path of the Pharisees, right? Number two, the second question is, who are you trying to impress? One of the things as you study the Pharisees is they were very big on using their spiritual life to impress others. It's one of their marks. Um, Jesus would say later on, way down your note sheet, everything they do is done for men to see. Um, the, the, the Pharisees were about using spiritual life as leverage to build a reputation for them that would give them power in their culture. Right? So here's what I want you to say. Anytime we start pursuing spiritual life to impress others, we're headed down the road of a Pharisee. And it's very dangerous. Um, one of the ways that uh, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6 and the Sermon on the Mount, because the Pharisees, of course, would, when it came to spiritual disciplines, uh, in Israel at the time, and you may not know this, but there were three main 
they call them pillars of the spiritual life. And it was fasting, prayer, and giving to the poor. Those are the three main, they call them pillars of piety. Now, Jesus affirmed all three. These are all three good things. He assumes that as followers of Jesus, we will do all three. We'll see that in a second. But Jesus said, it's really important why you do what you do. He said, if you do the right things for the wrong reason, it will not get you where you want to go. And so he uses those three pillars in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts off in Matthew 6, verse 1. He said, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. And he's using this in a good sense. He's talking about these pillars. Um, before men to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So he said it's, it's important to do the right things to pursue God, but it's important to do the right things for the right reason. And, and I like the phrase, we want to live our lives for the audience of one. As followers of Jesus, we live for him. We live to please him. We don't live to please others. We live to please him. And we live our life for the audience of one. And so we don't use our spiritual life as a way to build up our stock in the community, you see. And any time we do that, any time we give, any time we pray, any time we serve the poor, any time we serve in a ministry in order that others will think well of us, we have started down the path of the Pharisee, and it's very dangerous. And so just three, three examples. I won't read through all of this because it's very uh, repetitive, but he's just driving the point. So he says his first example, he says, so when you give to the needy, there's pillar number one. Do not announce with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. They were in image management. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. They're not getting anything from my father. Uh, next one, second pillar is the pillar, for, the pillar of prayer. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray. They uh, standing in the synagogues and the street corners to be seen by men. Right? They're trying to impress others. To tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. Not getting from my father. Third, third example is fasting. When you fast, he assumes we'll fast. Do not look somber as the hypocrites do. Oh my gosh, my stomach's killing me. I just like, whoa, what's wrong with you? I'm just fasting. Um, it's like, oh, yeah, I thought something was wrong, yeah. Um, uh, they disfigure their faces to show men they're fasting. I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. Because when you, when you, so in all these things, he says, hey, don't do it to be seen. Do it in secret. Live your life for the audience of one. So what's our antidote for being a Pharisee? You live your life for the audience of one. Now, here's the damning thing, though. Here's the most dangerous thing about this is that when we start going down this path of living our life to impress others, our spiritual life, what it does is it cuts us off from the transforming power of Jesus. Like if you're in a life group and you're pretending to be something you're not, not only are you being hypocritical and fake, but you are cutting yourself off from, your, uh, from Jesus' ability to transform your life. It's interesting, in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees were criticizing Jesus because um, he was hanging out with uh, rep, you know, kind of noteworthy sinners, clear, clear sinners. Right? And, uh, and so uh, in their mindset, if you want to be righteous, one of the ways you do it is by staying away from unrighteous people. 
So they're criticizing him and his disciples. And Jesus says, he uses famous analogy, but I think we sometimes miss it. He said, um, he, said I, he compared himself to a doctor and he said, I've not come for the healthy, I've come for the sick. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners. Now, what's he saying? What he's really saying is until you're willing to be honest that you're messed up and a sinner, even he can't help you. And this is just so profound, you know, because um, when you go to a doctor, I don't care if they're the best doctor in all the world. If you're not honest about your symptoms, they can't diagnose you. They can't help you. And here's the most damning thing and the most the dangerous thing for us is that when we go through life pretending, like we're in a life group and we're pretending it's all together, what we don't realize is that as long as we're pretending that we're not sick, we can never get well. The first step to getting well is, is admitting we're sick. And that's why one of our core values here, our number two core value as a church is authenticity, living honestly. Because we want to create a place where it's safe to be, tell the truth about yourself, what you're experiencing. Because if we can't be honest that we're sick, then even Jesus can't help us. And so anytime we slip into this, um, this kind of pattern of pretending to be something we're not, we have headed down the path of the Pharisee. Number three. Number three is how self-righteous are you? Now, before you answer this or say, oh, I'm not, um, <laughs> let me just kind of walk you through this. Um, this was uh, the Pharisees' approach to life. They would not seem self-righteous. This is being a bad thing. What, what they saw is that they, they felt like God has given us Torah and we have the oral law. And, and so if you just pursue that and you follow that, then you can attain a status of righteousness. And so you've, it's kind of up to you to attain that. And so then the corollary of that is you tend to look down. If you believe that you can attain it by your self-effort, a, a status of righteousness, you tend to look down on everyone who isn't because it's just sort of a choice. It's kind of a choice you make. And so you see this, um, that for the Pharisees, there was this huge divide between righteous people and unrighteous people. They were the righteous and there was unrighteous. So you see this, for example, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus um, is, uh, Luke tells us this account of Jesus. He goes into a house of a Pharisee. His name is Simon. Simon's invited him for dinner. But when Jesus comes, Simon doesn't honor him in the traditional way you'd honor like a, a rabbi. He doesn't, um, he doesn't wash his feet, have his feet washed. He doesn't um, anoint his head with oil. He doesn't give him the traditional kiss of welcome. Um, and so he, just, he doesn't really honor Jesus. And so while Jesus is there in the evening, uh, this woman comes in who Luke describes as a sinner. Now, we don't know what her sin was. We often assume, maybe correctly, she may be a prostitute, but she was well-known in the community. She had the sinner tag for sure. She was not keeping the law, the oral law, and so on. 
So she comes in, and she is so moved by Jesus and by his message of love and forgiveness and compassion and hope and so on that she actually starts bawling, and she gets down on her knees, and of course they're reclined at table, and so she lets her tears fall on Jesus' feet, and she washes her feet with her hair and then anoints him with expensive perfume so she'd come prepared, and she's kissing his feet. Now, Simon is very offended by this because in his mindset, if you want to be righteous, you stay away from unrighteous, and so Jesus must not be a prophet. If he were, he would know who this woman was. It wouldn't be allowing this to happen. And so this is sort of the mindset of a Pharisee, that if you do things the right way, you can attain your righteousness, and then you look down on people who haven't chosen to do life a right way. So, of course, Jesus goes on, and he challenges Simon, kind of calls him out and says, you know, you didn't really honor me. This woman did, and kind of goes through how she went over and above to do that. And then he said this. He said, Simon, the reason she did this is because the reason she loves so much is that she's been forgiven so much. In other words, the reason you don't love me is because you haven't been forgiven. You're still pretending you don't need it. And so, and so this whole paradigm you have is the wrong paradigm. See, here's the reality. The closer we get to Jesus, the more messed up we realize we are. It's like... Um, if you have a ruler or a yardstick in a distance, you might go, hey, this looks pretty straight. The closer you get, ah, oh, this is really crooked. And so as followers of Jesus, um, what happens as we come to Jesus, that we begin to understand our fallenness, and the closer we get, the more we realize our fallenness, and the more we realize his love in spite of that. And so what happens is that the closer we get to Jesus, the greater the compassion we have for others who are far from Jesus. Because we realize that we are made out of the same stuff. We're no different. You know, I was thinking, you know, this last week, uh, last weekend, there was this shooting in Orlando. I mean, it's a horrible event, right? 300 people or whatever. And, and it was just this terrible event. And it's always interesting to watch the Christian community respond to that. And some people will do so well, you know, and call out for prayer for the families and so on, but there will always be those who speak so derogatorily or so judgmentally. Um, and, and what it is, is it's a Pharisaic mindset. It's that there's good people and there are bad people. I'm one of the good people, and so the bad people are getting what they deserve. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we realize we're all bad people. And it is because of his love and mercy for us that we can be forgiven. And catch this, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we understand his grace. And so what happens is it creates tender hearts. It realizes that there is no one outside of God's love and ability to redeem. And we see people as far from God. It creates a heart for them, a compassion that I want to share Jesus with them. I want to share about this God who loves you in spite of your sin, in spite of your choices, and it creates a tender heart. And so whenever we go on Facebook and we start passing out hatred 
or violent judgment. All it's showing is that we may be a believer, but we're still of a party of the Pharisees. That we have not understood the grace that we have been shown and what's at stake. And so these are three questions. It's interesting, you know, we often forget this about the Apostle Paul. One of the reasons I believe Paul was so passionate, we forget this, Paul was a Pharisee. We'll see it, it'll come up in Acts. That he was a Pharisee. That he had this performance mentality of a relationship with God. To him, righteousness was something you attain by your efforts. It's interesting, in, in Luke's gospel, I didn't put this passage on the note sheet because I didn't think I'd have time for it. And so I do that to make myself feel better. I'm being disciplined. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, in Luke chapter 18, just write it down. Luke chapter 18, Jesus is one day talking to a group of Jews. And the way it's described is that they are confident in their own righteousness. And so Jesus tells a parable. He says, two guys went up to the temple. It's kind of his variation. Two guys went to a bar. No, it's kidding. Uh, like, two guys went to the temple. And he said, uh, one guy was a Pharisee. And he said, uh, he said, God, I just so, I'm so thankful that I am not like other men. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I don't do evil things. In fact, I'm not even like that tax collector over there. I'm not even sure why he's here. Shouldn't be coming to church. Like, what's wrong with him? Like, who would think you would ever hear him? He's a sinner. I'm keeping my distance. And then Jesus said, then the tax collector, well-known sinner, he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's what Jesus said. It's the second man that went away justified. And so for Paul, he realized that he was once that first man. But now he's come to Jesus. He realized that his passion for Torah had led him to a place of persecuting the Messiah, which is the worst sin possible. There's something desperately wrong with him. And he said, Jesus had mercy on me, the worst of sinners. And he's not just blowing smoke here. Killing Messiah followers is the worst of sinners. He said he had mercy on me so that through my life, people would see he has unlimited patience and they would take hope for their own life. And as followers of Jesus, the closer we get to him, the more we realize his love for us, the less self-righteous and the less judgmental we become and our grace expands and we know that there is no one who's farther than the grace of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you that you save us and rescue us, that we're justified not by our performance. God, and I know that we all have this inner Pharisee. We have to fight it. It's... Uh, 
We all have this natural tendency to add our man-made rules or tradition or rituals to what you've said, and it just leads to bondage and gets us off track, focusing on the things that aren't really most important. We end up neglecting the things that are. God, and so many times we live to impress others instead of living for audience of one. It's just part of our fallen human nature. It's what we do. And then, Father, there's this part of us that we, it's just hard for us to leave the old paradigm. We just think that we have to somehow, we can achieve our own righteousness on our own. And, Lord, so we just come as fallen people, but people that have been redeemed, people that have the spirit of Jesus in us, people that are rising with you from the dead. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us um, to, to just notice when we are headed down the path of the Pharisee, help us to repent of that, to turn from that, that we would be a people who truly love you with all of our heart, and we love people with all of our heart, regardless of their story or where they're from, that you could use us to restore a broken world. So, God, as we worship, as we bring you our offerings, we pray you would teach us truly how to pursue you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful prayer, Lord, that we pursue. Lead us to a place where we know you. you know, I was thinking during that song, is that as human beings, we so often have this natural tendency to want to take a relationship with God and reduce it to a set of rules. And really what that's about, it's about us controlling the relationship. If I can just come up with the rules, then I can check the boxes and I'm fine. In a real relationship, I have to listen and follow. So here's a better way. Instead of adding man-made rules, a better way to pursue is in our life to get in the habit of saying, what are the things that when I pursue these increase my passion for Jesus and my love for people? And what are the things in my life that when I pursue these things, they decrease my love for Jesus and my passion for people? That is such a better question to ask. And so as a church, may we be a church that doesn't get caught up in man-made rules. We certainly wouldn't fall into a trap of self-righteousness. But we'd be a church to say, God, we are full out for you. We want to love you with all of our heart. We want to know you. We want to please you. That's our top priority. We want to love you. We want to love people. And so, God, as you lead us, we will follow. And we will pursue those things that ignite our passion for you and our love for people. And we will stay away from those things that don't. And that may vary from person to person what those things are. It's not legalism we pursue what ignites our passion. It's legalism we make it a rule and we put it on everyone else. So may this week, maybe a week, that you pursue him. And you pursue those things that increase your passion for him and your love for people. Amen? God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.